Hey, I'm really excited to get back into the book of Romans with you uh, tonight and for the next couple of weeks. Uh, there are lots and lots of good things that we're going to see in these chapters. Uh, so why don't we get stuck into it? If you don't have a Bible, chuck your hand up and we can get one to you very, very quickly. Uh, so unless everyone's got one. Cool. All righty, let's pray. God, our Father, thank you so much for giving us your word, for inspiring it through your Holy Spirit, for giving it to us uh, in hard copy in our language. And we thank you that we can now read it and grasp it and come to grips with what it says. And we pray that you give us strength to do that as uh, we face a difficult passage in some ways. And we pray for your strength and your grace to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, hands up if you've ever watched a documentary on World War II. That's a fair few. Cool. Or if you studied it at school. Who studied World War II at school? It's kind of compulsory, isn't it? So everyone should probably have their hand up at that point. World War II documentaries can be really, really interesting. But as I've watched World War II documentaries, I've also found them quite difficult to watch. It's never easy to think about the fact that during World War II, Nazi Germany established more than 300 concentration camps where millions of people, mostly Jews and prisoners of war, were enslaved. They were mistreated. They were forced to work long hours without food and then countless people died or were exterminated. That's not easy to think about. But some survived this awful ordeal. And we have their stories written in books and documentaries to remind us of the awful tragedy that World War II was. Have a listen to the words of the survivor, Edward Adler. We slept on straw bags and we worked 10 hours a day on a field that was approximately a square kilometre. One area of the field was quite high and the other area was quite low. The area had to be levelled. And they had tracks running from one end to the other, and on, on those tracks were mining cars. On each one of those mining cars, a stormtrooper was standing with a whip. And we had to run from one end of this field to the other, shovel the mining car full of dirt, and return it to empty it out on the lower end. If anyone would have told me that at that time that I can run 40 kilometres a day, I'd say you're crazy. But I did, day after day after day. Put, your shoe, put yourself in the shoes of Edward Adler. What would it have felt like to experience that kind of slavery? To have your masters force hard labor on you, without food, without a proper bed, without hygiene, day after day, month after month, even year after year. Imagine the longing for freedom. And now imagine for a moment that you are, you are Edward Adler. You are woken up in the middle of the night. The guard picks you up and carries you off to an office where they look at some of your papers and they look at you and look back at the paper and then they look at each other and whisper to each other and they look back at you. And then the guard comes over, takes you out of the room, through the camp and to the gate. And he opens the gate, pushes you out, and closes the gate behind you. 
feel free. All of that pain, all of that hard work, all of those sleepless nights, the hunger and the oppression and slavery are over. Imagine the sense of relief. Imagine the tears of joy that you would have. Well, today we're back in the book of Romans. Paul's letter to the Christians in Rome. And in our passage today, Paul shows us this picture of our slavery and our wonderful freedom. But we're coming to the book of Romans kind of partway through because we looked at it earlier in the year. We looked at chapters 1 to 5, and now we're coming to look at chapter 6 onwards. So to help us remember where we're up to, I'm keen to hear from you. What were your, some of your favorite verses from chapters 1 to 5? So maybe open it out in front of you. Have a look. Skim over it. Maybe look at the headings if that helps you to know where you're up to. And if you spot one of your favorite verses... Shout out the chapter and verse, and I'll read it out for us. Romans 3, 23 to 24. 23, it's the Romans 3, 23 to 24. Have a look at that one. Paul says, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood to demonstrate his righteousness because in his restraint God passed over the sins previously committed. An encouraging verse. Others? One, chapter 1, 16 and 17 says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is God's power for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. A wonderful picture of the power of the gospel that God can save people who have faith in Jesus. Cool. Other verses? 5 verse 1 and 2. Let's have a look. Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Also through him we have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That verse is about our present, having peace with God and our future, the hope of glory, sharing in God's glory. Cool. Other verses? 5, 6, and 7 says, and 8, okay. 6 says, For while we were still helpless at the appointed moment, Christ died for the ungodly. For rarely will anyone die for, just, for a just person, though for a good person perhaps someone might even dare to die. But God proves his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. I'm glad we added eight. That's good. Any last takers? Romans 3, to ah, continuing on on that great passage, 27 to 31. Paul says, Where then is boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By one of works? No, on the contrary, by a law of faith. For we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. I'm going 
going to stop there because otherwise we'll keep going and we'll run out of time. But a great verse telling us of the faith that saves and that God saves those not according to the law, not according to what we do, but according to faith in Jesus. And so as we pull some of those verses together and the whole of chapters 1 to 5, let's just remember for a second, what is Romans chapters 1 to 5 all about? Romans 1 to 5 is all about the gospel of grace. Paul shows us all humanity have rejected God and turned away from him. They disobey him and so they deserve God's wrath. But God has shown his grace to us, his undeserved love and kindness by graciously sending Jesus to be the sacrifice to pay for sins. Romans 1 to 5, all about the gospel of grace, God graciously saving sinful people. If only they will have faith in Jesus who died in their place. But Romans chapter 6 takes a turn in a little bit of a different direction. So, uh, in chapters 1 to 5, Paul tells us the gospel of grace. He spells it out for us. But now, Paul starts focusing on how the gospel of grace affects our now and our eternity. And all along the way, at different points, Paul mentions the law. I don't know if you've noticed that. The law this, the law that. The Jewish law he's talking about, the Old Testament law, God's commands to Israel so that they could live in the land his way. And from time to time, Paul shows us how the Old Testament, the law, fits with the gospel of grace. How do those two things work together? And we can see it in the verses just before our passage. So look at chapter 5, verse 20. It says, The law came along to multiply the trespass, but where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. What is Paul saying about the law here? What happened when God gave Israel the Old Testament law? It multiplied the trespass. It it made Israel more sinful. The law which God gave them, which was meant to be a good law to give them a prosperous life actually showed them to be sinful and caused them to sin more because as we read in our Old Testament they saw the commands and they decided to disobey them to break them time over time even though God gave warning after warning they knew that the law was right and good but they did what was wrong and so they were made more guilty the trespass was multiplied but when Paul says, but then Paul says, where sin multiplied, grace multiplied even more. What does he mean? Well, because Israel had more sin and more guilt because of the law, when God forgave them, when God sent Jesus to die for them, he was showing more grace to them. It's like when you have a messy house or a messy room. The more mess you have, the more cleaning you need to do. Some of you don't understand this. (laughs) The more mess you have, the more cleaning needs to happen. The more sin there is, the more grace God needs to show. And so, then in chapter 6, Paul raises two questions, two objections to his statement here in 5 verse 20. And he plays devil's advocate with himself. And we see the first one, the first objection, in chapter 6, verse 1. And we'll look at the second objection next week. But chapter 6, verse 1, it says this, What then should we say? 
should we continue in sin so that grace may multiply? He says, if sin causes more grace to be shown, then isn't it logical to keep on sinning so that God can show more grace? Let's sin lots and lots and lots and more and more because then God can show more grace and more forgiveness. And that's a good thing, right? He's asking, does the gospel of grace encourage us to sin? Should we make more mess so that God can do more cleaning? What's the answer to Paul's question? Have a look at verse 2. Absolutely not. He says, he goes on, How can we who died to sin still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? If more sin equals more grace, shouldn't we keep on sinning? No, no way. Don't even think about it. Not a chance. Don't entertain the thought. Why? Paul says we have died to sin. What does that mean? Well, have a close look at verse 3. Paul says, When you were baptized, in a sense, you have died like Jesus died. Now, that doesn't mean that baptism saves you or that if you are not baptized, that you are not a Christian. No, Paul is... Paul is using baptism to mean becoming a Christian. And baptism is the symbol that you have received the grace of God and you are saved. Now Paul is saying, when you become a Christian, you are united with Jesus. Your identity is tied up with him, so much so that what happens to him happens to you. And so Jesus died. Jesus died and so your old self died Jesus was buried and so your old self has been buried with him Jesus was raised from the dead and so one day we too will be raised physically for eternity but in the meantime Paul says we have been raised spiritually to have new life in Jesus because we are united to him this is the wonderful news of the gospel isn't it when we have faith in Jesus who died for us, God justifies us. He forgives our sin. He declares us righteous in his eyes. And we are given a fresh start. It's like we've died and we are given new, justified, different life. A life of joy and freedom instead of despair and frustration. A life of following Jesus instead of disobeying him. And I think the best way to describe this is caterpillars. When a caterpillar goes into a cocoon, its caterpillar life ends. And soon enough, butterfly life begins. Caterpillar life is dead and gone, but now new butterfly life is here. I'm not saying that any of you remind me of caterpillars or butterflies or that butterflies are better than caterpillars. You might like caterpillars better. I don't know. Just that, when a caterpillar becomes a butterfly, it's not a caterpillar anymore. It doesn't... Caterpillar life is gone, and butterfly life is here. And so Paul says, when you become a Christian, old sinful life is gone, and new forgiven life in Christ is here. And then Paul tells us, he gives us more information. What is this new life with Christ like? Have a look at verse 6. 
For we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that sin's dominion over the body may be abolished, so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin's claims. What does the new life in Christ look like? Free from sin's dominion. No longer enslaved. Paul paints sin as a harsh slave driver. Before we know Christ, sin rules our life. It is our master. We obey it and we do what it says and God's wrath is on us because of it. But when you become a Christian, your old life dies with Jesus. You are not a slave to sin anymore because you can't have a dead slave. We are released from slavery to sin. It's no longer our master. And so the Christian life is not meant to be one that is full of sin, one that is characterized by sin, one that is enslaved to it. No, instead, it's meant to be at the second half of verse 4. Paul says, Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in a new way of life. We have died to sin with Christ and been raised with him. Why? for the purpose of walking a new life with him, no longer enslaved to sin but living for Jesus. When the butterfly emerges from the cocoon, it doesn't go back to caterpillar life. It doesn't crawl along like a caterpillar anymore. It doesn't think about being a caterpillar. It's a butterfly. It flies because it has wings. Paul says when you become a Christian, you leave your old life of sin behind and you are given a new life it's as if you were enslaved in a concentration camp but you had your number called you had your document signed and you were released all of that hard labor and pain and sadness is over you are free to live a new life and paul says you have been set free from sin it is not your master anymore and if you are here and you are not yet a Christian, you have not accepted that gift of being declared righteous, you have not put your faith and trust in Jesus and been united with him, if that is you, then Paul says you have not experienced this freedom that he is talking about. He says you are a slave to sin. And sin is a master who does not treat you well. And sin means that God's terrible wrath is on you. But you can be free. You can put your faith and trust in the Lord Jesus who died and rose to pay for our sin and to save us from slavery to it. So come and get to know Jesus and know the joy of forgiveness and being saved from sin. But for those of us who are Christians, at this point, we're panicking, we're panicking a little bit, aren't we? Paul says that the Christian life is not characterized by sin. Does that mean that once I become a Christian, I shouldn't be sinning? What do you mean, Paul? We know Paul knows this well. While we are in this body of flesh, while we are in this sinful world, we are still bombarded with temptations and we still sin daily. If Paul thought that a Christian would never sin, 
He wouldn't have written this chapter. He wouldn't have needed to. But Paul knows well that the Christian life is one of continual struggle with sin until Jesus comes back. Continually putting away the sinful life to put on the new righteous life. The Christian life has bumps in the road. But God has graciously given us his word and he's given us his Holy Spirit and each other to make us more like Jesus. So what Paul is doing in this chapter is putting things into perspective. He's showing us how illogical it is for us to keep sinning. God has saved us from sin to live a new life for him. So why should we keep on sinning? It doesn't make sense. But sadly, that's what we do what we do when we forget the gospel of grace and when we forget the holiness and fear of God. It's what we do when we trust in ourselves and not God. It's what we do when we let our desires get the better of us and we ignore God's word. It's what we do when we put our interests before others and we mistreat each other. It's what we do when we listen to what the world says and we chase money and stuff and comfort and things that pass away what I do when I choose to serve myself instead of loving my wife. It's what I do when I choose not to pray, but I rely on my own strength, as I so often do. Paul knows this struggle all too well. He knows that the Christian life is a constant struggle with sin, and so he calls us to action in verses 11 to 14. He says, Sin is not the right response to the gospel of grace. He says the right response to God's grace is to fight sin with our mind and with our actions. Let's have a look at verse 11. So you too consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body. Paul says we are dead to sin, but we need to consider ourselves dead to sin. It actually requires a shift in our thinking. We need to purposely determine sin will not rule over my life. I am dead to it and I am alive to serve God. Paul says, fight sin with your mind. Consider yourself dead to sin. But he also tells us to fight sin with our actions. So have a look at verse 13. And do not offer any parts of your body to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But as those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all the parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. The right response to the gospel of grace, it involves a shift in our thinking, but it also involves a shift in our actions. He says, do not offer the parts of your body to destructive purposes, to be weapons for sin. Do not offer your hand to stealing or your tongue to lying. Do not offer your feet to walking away from your responsibilities. Do not offer your mind to thinking you are better than others. Do not offer your mouth to drunkenness. Do not offer your eyes to lust. The list could go on. But Paul also gives us the flip side. In response to God's grace, we need to replace sin with righteous living. So offer your hands to help someone who is in need or cook them a meal. Offer your tongue to encourage people and to tell them the life-giving gospel of Jesus. 
Offer your eyes to reading God's word and your voice to praying to him. Think about each part of your body and figure out how you can use it as a weapon for righteousness. The gospel of grace says that we have been united with Jesus. We have died to sin, been raised to new life to live for him. So Paul says, consider yourself dead to those sins. Do not let them reign. Do not offer yourself to them, but offer yourself to God as weapons for righteousness. This is the Christian life, a life set free from the penalty and slavery of sin, the gift of new forgiven life where we grow more and more like Jesus, continuing to count ourselves dead to sin and offering our lives to serve the God who has so graciously saved us. Let's pray for his help. Well, God, we confess our sin. We confess that we have broken your commands. We have gone against your character and will. We have done what we wanted instead of what you have wanted. And so we say sorry. We apologize for the ways that we have put ourselves before others and not cared about what you have said. Lord, we thank you so much for the great gift of the Lord Jesus, that he washes us clean, that he died to take our punishment, that you have given us grace immeasurable. Lord, help us as we struggle to fight sin and as we feel like it enslaves us so often to put it to death to consider ourselves dead to it and to put on the new life of living for Jesus, for his glory and for our joy. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.